We're going to be looking in John 3.16 again tonight. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, We're going to finish up our time together in this passage tonight, God willing. And uh, we have looked at the initial statement, uh, for God so loved. And we talked about the love of God and what the love of God does to us and what the love of God does through us. Uh, We considered then the object of this incredible love, God so loved the world, God so loved the world. And that that love for the world prompted him to give his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, in this context, we see that there's a word that. I just said it's hard to say that without saying that. I meant to, sorry. Uh, The word that. In this context, it means in order that or so that. That is, it's a purpose statement. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order that or so that. In fact, some of the modern translations have it that way. So that. Uh, Whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the passage and and the remainder of the passage divides itself into three clauses and we'll use that to organize our consideration tonight. Uh, And of course the first one is whoever believes in him. Whoever uh, believes in him. Now the word used for whoever in this passage in Greek is the word pos. That doesn't mean anything to you. Nobody in this building tonight, including me, is a Greek scholar as far as I know. If you need to correct me on that later, well, you just let me know, and I won't say that anymore, I promise. Uh, When Keith was here, uh, Keith is a Greek scholar, and uh, if I needed to know something, I'd ask him. Uh, But I have studied it, got a couple of years of it. I went a theology degree, now a language degree, uh, and there's not a lot of times that I even talk about it much. Um, But this is one of the times that I think we need to look at it because the word whoever uh, is one little small word in Greek. It's the word pos. Pos. Pos means all or every. The distinction is always made by the presence of the article. Sometimes it means all and it considers uh, whatever it is considering as a whole. But sometimes it uses the article and when it does it's considering each and every one. Everyone, and it is that sense that's used in this passage, everyone believing, literally everyone believing. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order that, so that everyone believing on him, everyone believing. Now, There are those who feel compelled to suggest that all in this passage really uh, doesn't mean all, that that whosoever doesn't mean whosoever or whoever. Uh, And they can uh, seem compelled to suggest, as we noted last week, that the world really doesn't mean that God loved the whole world but just some of the world. And frankly tonight, I'm going to leave them to make that argument as best I can. I figure you hear too much of that stuff already, so I'm not going to preach it here for them. Uh, They can just make that argument the best they can. Uh, But in this case, the purpose of God's love for the world is clearly stated. He gave. Why did he give his only begotten son? In order that all who believe on him, 
All who believe on him, all believing, would have everlasting life. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, now, for me, I look at passages like Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Notice that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Exact same word, pos, exact same usage, every man. And this passage tells me that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. And I'm, I'm, I'm a simple guy, I understand that, but I just believe that God said what he meant. And when he said that he loved the world, and I understand there are passages where the idea of the world is presented when it didn't mean every person in the world, I understand that. But the context always makes that clear. And in John chapter 3 and verse 16, the context makes it very clear, God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, and we have that validated then in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Amen. Now there are times when we almost want to emphasize the all in this passage, the whoever believing or everyone who believes, uh, as to leave the idea that uh, we think that all humanity is going to be saved. And those on the other side of the aisle who want to narrow the confines of God's love uh, to just a select few as opposed to the world or to every man, uh, for those on, on that side, they often accuse us of trying to preach that if Christ died for everybody, uh, if God loved the whole world and he gave his son for the whole world, uh, then that would necessarily mean that the whole world, every man, woman, or child is going to be saved. Uh, and, and to me, that's an absurd argument. Uh, Jesus addressed many people uh, who would not come to him, uh, who would not believe on him. And uh, so the text emphasizes that this promise is made to whoever or applied to whoever believes in him, all, everyone believing, everyone believing in him. Uh, it's not the idea of, an, of a limited atonement, or the idea that Jesus only died for the elect or only loved the elect, and therefore only the elect, the chosen ones, can be saved. No, this passage tells us that he loved the whole world. He gave his only begotten son, and that all believing on him, everyone believing on him, should not perish but have everlasting life. So the quantification that is made then in John chapter 3 and verse 16 is in reference to everyone who believes. It becomes a very similar passage then when we understand that to John chapter 1 and verse 10 which tells us that he was in the world, that's Jesus, the world was made by him and the world knew him not. The same reference, the world. Uh, now what was that? He was in John, this is just two chapters before John 3.16. He's bringing up the world again. What did it mean here? He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, the world sometimes means the creation, the earth. <laughs> the earth knew exactly who Jesus was. They never have any question. When they told him, make the kids shut up who were shouting Hosanna to the highest when he rode the donkeys in the world, make them hush. He said, if I made them hush, what would happen? The rocks would cry out. Rocks knew who he was. 
The creation knew its master. It always has. It still does. It does exactly what it tells them to do. The creation uh, is waiting for its redemption. It wasn't the, the created earth. It, did, it, it followed his commands explicitly. knew exactly who he was. Did what it told him to do. What it, he told it to do. World in John chapter 1 and verse 10 obviously refers to humanity. He was in the world. The world was made by him. And the world knew him not. Second class of people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What is his own in John chapter 10, 1 verse 11? Obviously that refers to Israel. The physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of those uh, tribes of Israel called collectively God's chosen people, his own. He came unto the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. That is the mass of humanity. They did not recognize it, didn't know he was here, didn't care. He was in the world. The world was made by him. The world didn't know him. But he also, then the tragedy, the real tragedy, he came unto his own. But his own received him not. But I'm glad that's in the Bible. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus came into the world. He loved the world, humanity. He came more specifically to his own. John chapter 1 and verse 11, the world knew him not, his own received him not. But some received him. And to them gave he power to become the sons of God. He still does. Amen? He still does. It is conditioned then upon everyone, everyone who believes on Jesus Christ. That's why tonight I can confidently stand in this place and tell you that every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will, should not perish but have everlasting life. That promise is made to everyone, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. They can be confident about that because as many as received him to those that believe on his name, if you wonder how they received him, it's right there in the text. They, received, they believed on his name. And because of that, they were born of God. They become the sons of God because they experienced a new birth. Whosoever, all believing, all believing, should not perish should not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now again, we're not Greek scholars. Most of us really aren't good at English either. I can say that for myself. Uh, but there are times, again, when that understanding can be helpful. This is one of those times because this expression, should not perish, is in what's known as the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood in English always expresses something uh, that is in doubt, in question as to its outcome. It is something that should happen, 
But just because it should happen does not mean that it will happen. That's our way of expressing that the outcome is doubtful. We should go to church on Sunday night. We should. But not everybody does. Not everyone who does some of the time does so all of the time. We should. We use the subjunctive mood to express when the outcome is doubtful. In Greek, however, the subjunctive mood is almost always associated with the future tense. And in that sense, it is carried over into English most of the time. When we speak of something in the subjunctive mood, we also speak of it in a future tense. However, the doubt present in English doesn't always carry over in subjunctive in the Greek. Hang with me a minute. Hang with me. There's a reason for this. John chapter 13 and verse 10. This is the night when Jesus uh, was, uh, they were observing the Last Supper, and before they observed the Last Supper, he washed the disciples' feet. And you know, he had that interaction with Simon Peter, verse 10. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. That's what Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now, John. John the Apostle then added this commentary onto what he said. For that's because he knew who should betray him. There's that same concept. Subjunctive mood. Now when John was writing this, he was writing it many years after it happened. He knew good and well who was going to betray Jesus. He knew it was Simon Peter. The outcome was not in doubt or in question. But he used the subjunctive tense because in that context, he was talking about something that was yet future. He knew it was who should betray him. Now, I mentioned this passage just to show you that the idea of should, and when we see that in the New Testament, does not always mean the outcome is in doubt. Now, there are those who really don't understand the idea of an eternal salvation. Okay? There are those who really struggle with the doctrine. We call it the doctrine of security of the believer. Commonly, we refer to it as once saved, always saved. And a lot of people in the religious world struggle with it, and they love to bring up John 3.16 and uh, point out that uh, it tells us that we should not perish. And they'll point out, well, you see that? It doesn't mean that they will not perish. Uh, Now, some of you folks are are jumping ahead and you say, no, I got an NIV Bible and the NIV says shall not. Yeah, I know that. I understand. I looked it up. I checked it out. Most of them maintain the KJV's translation, uh, should not perish, should not perish. That's because it's subjunctive in Greek. But I want you to know tonight that just because it says should not perish, does not mean that the outcome is in question. Instead, it is written this way because of a simple truth. Not all believers are going to die. Not all believers are going to die. How do you know that? Well, the Bible tells you. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, but we shall all be changed. Paul obviously including himself into that number. 
<laughs> we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul had the blessed hope. Same one I've got. Oh, my mama paid for a burial policy for me just not long after I was born. And I've had it ever since. Still got it to this day. I hope I never have to cash it in. I got a life insurance policy. I hope I leave with the insurance company because I don't die. I want to go out with a shout. Does anybody else feel the same way tonight? Huh? I want to go out with the trumpet, the, the trumps are sound, and, and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ arise first. I hope I'm preaching a funeral when it goes out. I do. Amen. What a place to be, but in a cemetery. Amen. And just for a second, just for a second, start seeing those graves busting open, and people, I want to be there. What a place to be. Oh. Not all of God's people, though, are going to die. I'll show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Amen. Not all of God's people are going to die. Now, I can't tell you 100% absolutely that that is why that we find should not perish in John 3:16. But that's a pretty good reason. Not all of God's people are going to suffer death. We can't really say shall not perish. If they said that, then no one believing in Christ would ever die, would ever suffer physical death. And the Bible doesn't teach that. And the promise of the New Testament is not that way. Many, many, many of God's children have lived in faith and died in faith. It happens, but not all. Therefore, the subjunctive mood in this passage, I think, very clearly expresses the reality that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It doesn't mean we, we, we shall not perish. We might die, but we might not. We might not. John chapter 5 and verse 24, if you want to passage this a little more clearly, or makes the same point basically a little more clearly, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Not subjective there. Uh-uh. They got it right. Shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us right here, Jesus himself, John 5, 24, he that hears my word believes on him that sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation because you've been passed from death unto life should not perish. <clears throat> Lastly, have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For the should not perish, there is also the have, present tense, that have everlasting life. Uh, add in a few more passages of Scripture along that everlasting life thing. I just like the sound of everlasting. Don't you? Everlasting. Everlasting. Uh, I, every now and then I buy an Everlast battery. 
doesn't last forever. <laughs> oh, it doesn't. Uh, but God's salvation does. Everlasting life. This is the will of him, John 6 and 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John chapter 6 and verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Paul would address this as well, Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what a great passage. Later on, nearer to the end of his life, he would write to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That's quite an introduction. There were times that I remember hearing a teacher or my dad, many times my dad, preface something he was about to say by saying, you listen to me. You remember this, pay attention. That's kind of what Paul did to Timothy in this passage. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. It's hard for us to think of the Apostle Paul, church planter, writer of huge portions of the New Testament, miracle worker, raiser of the dead. It's hard for us to think of Paul as a great sinner. But it wasn't hard for Paul. Wasn't hard for Paul. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see, Paul, Paul never forgot what God saved him out of. He, he never lost sight of where he would have still been had it not been for the grace of God. You say, well, what kind of sinner was Paul? Well, Paul was a Pharisee kind of sinner. Which means that when you looked at Paul from the outside looking in, you wouldn't see a really bad person. You'd see a very, very, very religious person. He knew the Bible front to back. He was in church, their version of it, synagogue, temple worship just exactly like the Bible required. His parents were godly people. He was raised in this his whole life. He was educated, went to seminary. Paul was as religious as it gets. He was so convinced and so convicted that he was on God's side and he was on the side of truth that he was willing even to spend his life and if necessary to give his life to kill the people who disagreed with him. 
We don't know how many people Paul killed or if he even had it, did it himself or had it done. We do know that the Bible tells us about the first Christian martyr and the people who killed him laid their cloak at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, their leader. That means he was the one who was in charge. I don't know if he threw a rock or not that day. Don't know. But he had it done. He had it done. What kind of sinner was Paul? He was a religious sinner. You remember what happened on the road to Damascus when the light shone round about him, struck him blind, heard a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Don't you know that rocked his world? Oh, but didn't he ask a great question? Lord, what would thou have me to do? Before that week was over, Saul of Tarsus persecutor of Christians was now a Christian missionary one of them notice in this text that Paul says that I obtained mercy so that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life And if you share my testimony that you were going to church about nine months before you were born, you had every potential, every possibility of growing up to be as big and bad of a religious sinner as Paul was. It's hard to imagine that all around this world tonight, people are facing death and facing an eternity in hell. It's hard to imagine that people would go to hell from the soft padded pew after having gone to church and been faithful and studied the Bible all their life. And yet Jesus did not say there'd be a few who would stand before him that he'd say, I never knew you too, but many. Many. If you share that testimony tonight, then Paul the Apostle was saved as a pattern for you. He was saved as a pattern for me. We could have lived and died and gone to hell as an eternal member of the religious lost. But thank God, we found mercy through Jesus Christ. Paul never got over it. And I pray tonight that you and I would never get over it either. You see, when we talk about who is the greatest sinner, we'd all argue with Paul. No, Paul, it wasn't you. Uh, but remember, Paul was writing under inspiration. Simon Peter told the story. I like to call it the story of the prodigal pig. We all know the story of the prodigal son. But the story of the prodigal pig tells a story. Of Simon Peter talked about the sow that's washed returns to her wallowing in the mire. We call that the 
prodigal pig. I'm going to take a little liberty with that passage of Scripture. You'll see why. Uh, there was a time when uh, somebody decided, for some strange notion, to bring a pig in the house. It's not as strange as you think about it. You may have friends that have a pet pig. I got family members that have a pet pig in their house. A little strange to me. You bring a pig in the house, you clean him all up, and set him down at the table to eat with you. Well, you know, the pig wasn't comfortable around the, that kind of thing. He couldn't, didn't have, he couldn't hold a fork and had to eat with his mouth. And Everybody, he always felt uncomfortable. Didn't ever know exactly what was right, but one day he got loose and he smelled something. And though he was cleaned up and though he had spent time in the father's house and been around the father's other children, he never fit in there. And the moment that he smelled that hog walla, pow, he was right to it. it. Failed off in it. It didn't matter that he was washed. It didn't matter. He was right back in the mud and the mire. If you've messed with pigs very much, you know they'll do that every time. Clean them up, get them all ready to show in the fair. You better not let them near a mud hole. They'll be in the middle of it. That's their nature. A sow can be washed up, but it's going to return to its wallowing in the mire. There's a lot of people that decide on personal reformation. They want to clean up. They want to quit their bad habits. Do better. Live a better life. I'm going to be a better person. Be a better man, better woman, better dad, better mom. I'm going to quit drinking, quit drugging, quit whatever. We see it all the time. Try to clean up, but it don't work. Because the only thing that works is to change the nature. And only God, only God can change our nature. Only God can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness and turn us. Now we're not a sow anymore. Now we're sheep. And, and sheep are instinctively scared of miry places. That's why they had to lead them beside the still waters. They're afraid of the mud because they know that their wool will absorb that stuff and they'll be drawn down into it and, and it'll kill them. Different nature, different animal. You see, when God promises us everlasting life, He does that through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not a matter of personal reformation. It is a matter instead of spiritual regeneration and transformation. And that's what he offers us tonight through Jesus Christ. If you've received that tonight, God has rescued you, delivered you, maybe like you did, like you did me, from the opportunity of being a member of the religious lost. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe you were out there in the mire. And the muck of sin. Maybe you've been out there. And you've lived a life far from God. But you weren't so far away that the Lord couldn't find you. <laughs> Were you? Aren't you glad tonight, regardless of your testimony, that God came to you where you were. Showed you your need for salvation. Pointed you to the cross. And aren't you glad tonight you received Christ as your Savior? Of course you are. That can be your testimony tonight too.
I hope I've given you a few things tonight out of John 3.16 that might help you along the way in discussing Scripture with friends or co-workers. Or, uh, there's a whole lot of people in the world today that believe that God don't love everybody. I just take God so loved the world. Maybe that he won't save everybody. Well, the Bible says he'll save all, all, everyone who believes on Jesus Christ. And not one of them, not one, is going to be told no. And all of them get everlasting life. Let's stand together, please.